Hi, welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today, we'll be talking with Ralph DeWitt, the owner of Ralph's Records. Thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. What's your connection to Lubbock? I got here right before my senior year at Monterey, my third high school. We went from San Antonio to Chicago to Lubbock. We got here exactly one month to the day after the big tornado, 1970. So my first glance at Lubbock was not pretty. We were coming in from the north. That's where the tornado had hit violently. And all I saw was destruction. Lubbock, I love it. I always defend Lubbock. It's been very good to me. I think the music scene here is wonderful. It certainly treated me well business-wise. And I went to Texas Tech, and like I said, graduated from Monterey. And my kids went to Monterey, and they graduated from Texas Tech in the last few years. And I definitely feel a kinship to Lubbock and all that it has. The 1970s are considered to be a special time in the Lubbock music scene after the tornado. What was it like coming into the city at that time and your experience with the music scene here in the 70s? It took me a little while. I was not quite old enough to get into the clubs at that point. In fact, you had to be 21 to drink at first, and Joe Ely was always king here. I was more into Buddy Holly as far as local music, and I got to confess, I was only 18 when I got here. I didn't know Buddy was dead. I just knew I liked his songs, but I knew he was from Lubbock, and I started asking around. It didn't take long before I realized he'd been gone for about 11 years at that point. Clubs that were around then, Fat Dogs and Main Street Saloon, they had bands if not every night, every weekend. Some of them have gone on to legendary status, and some of them had to move on to Austin to make it big. There's more opportunities out that way, but also more competition. Through the years, I've had many musician friends that couldn't wait to move to Dallas, couldn't wait to move to Austin. Half of them come back. Again, the opportunities are there. The places to play are there. Now, instead of competing against 10 bands in town, you're competing against 200. You take the good with the bad, I guess. I love going to Austin and Dallas to hear music, but Lubbock, you ought to be able to find any kind of music at any time. It's here. You worked a lot of odd jobs before opening up your own store. Did you ever work in the music scene in Lubbock? I think the first job I had that was musically related was when Harrigan's first opened in the late 70s. They had a bar with a DJ stand and a small dance floor. And I was dating a girl that worked at Santa Fe Station, which was owned by the same people. She'd seen my record collection. She knew I'd done one show on KTXT, like I say, in 73. So she said, my boyfriend can do it. And I'd never DJed at a club. I had no idea what I was doing, but faked my way in. And the first night Harrigan's was open, I was their DJ. Learned pretty quickly which kind of music the owner liked and which he didn't. He wanted it to be a classy place. And my favorite group was probably Grand Funk. It was the disco era. This was 1977, and disco was really kicked in. I won't say I didn't like disco music. I don't listen to it now, but it brings back such good memories. And disco was great for people starting to dance again. You know, we were trying to dance in the mid-70s to smoke on the water and taking care of business. And if you'd had enough to drink, you could do it, but that's not really dancing. Disco, you better know what you're doing or you're going to look really foolish. So as far as any other jobs... I guess musically related, until I opened my store, probably Harrigan's was all I can think of. Where did the idea of opening your own store come from? I think I subconsciously always knew I wanted to do that because at the time I started, somehow my garage was full of boxes of records that I had been buying in quantity 
I was majoring in, uh, well, I changed my major all the time at tech. I ended up in business, but for a while there, I was in telecom and one famous semester in uh, range and wildlife management until I flunked soils. (laughs) So I was lost. My buddies and I mainly hung around the UC and played pool. And there was a hamburger stand at 10th and University called Bill's Lotterburger. We would have lunch there almost every day. I kept my eye on this building. It was really famously known as the Hole in the Wall, hippie clothing store, late 60s, early 70s. And at this point, it was half of it was a recording studio. The other side on the bottom floor was a cleaners. And on the top floor was a stained glass studio, living quarters, actually. And I saw that that cleaners had closed down one time. And I thought, maybe now's the time. You know, right across the street from a major university, rent was cheap. I think it was $250 a month back then. They showed me the building and there were some old posters left from, I think whoever had the cleaners also was into music because they let them put up local flyers all over the windows and they'd left a bunch of them in there. And I thought, this was meant to be, this is calling me. I had no idea what I was doing. I ran that business like a garage sale for a couple of years until somebody said, you better get a sales tax license. <laughs> you know, I paid all my taxes through the years. <laughs> but anyway, I had to start paying attention. I had to have regular hours. I was still partying quite a bit. And I'd open the store whenever I got out of bed and rolled down to the store. Sometimes it'd be at 10 a.m., sometimes it'd be 2 p.m. And then I hired a guy finally after the first year. I told him, you got to open up at 10 a.m. every morning. You know, that's what people expect, like I'd been doing it. And business doubled with regular hours. It was amazing. I learned pretty quickly that rules are meant to be followed and there's a reason for them. Set the stage for me in terms of the environment of Lubbock at the time that you opened your store. Were there other record stores here? What was the music scene like in that moment? Other record stores, UV Blake Records was probably my inspiration, that and B&B music. UV had been around since probably the 40s. I was a regular there, and I used to special order music, and I got to know all the employees very well. And for whatever reason, I got into oldies when it wasn't cool. I had long hair and did all the things that my hippie friends did, but I was listening to Buddy Holly and Elvis and Ricky Nelson, and they thought that was weird. Now, I liked the other stuff too, but for some reason, I always felt a kinship to 50s music. And UV Blake Records had been around at that time, and I respected that. Plus, they had black and white photos of all the 50 stars on their walls. So much of their fixtures there. In fact, I own most of them now. I ended up buying them out. When they went out of business, I've got their old listening stations. They're at my warehouse. There's actually a UV Blake display in there. And I did pride myself at one time years later on saying that I think I own a piece of every record store that's ever been here. Because every time they fell aside, I would go down there. And if I didn't buy all their stock, I bought a fixture or two. I didn't buy it for any other reason than I needed the fixtures. But at some time, I realized I really do have some from Flipside, UV Blake, B&B. Dorman Burns was the owner of B&B. And that was even more of an inspiration because they also had used eight-track tapes. Now, UV Blake and all the other record stores had nothing but new product. And that's just the way it was. If you bought used stuff, you went to a flea market or garage sale. And UV had, for $3, this big wall of used 8-tracks, and they took trade-ins, two for one. So I got to where I was taking my 8-tracks down there and trading them two for one. And then I was working for Yellow Cab. I had my trunk full of 8-tracks, and I sold them out of the trunk of my Yellow Cab. (laughs) 
which I don't think it's illegal, but I don't know if they knew about it either. So I'd be down at the bus station downtown with my trunk open selling used eight track tapes. Dorman gave me some advice on how to run a store and he actually got disillusioned with the business and went into art. He's an artist. He's pretty acclaimed as a matter of fact. So as far as the music scene at that time, the mall had opened up. Record Town was out there. Bleep Garnett worked there. He was the later the owner of Lips Records, which was probably all through the 80s. Bleep's experience came from Record Town out at the mall. Nothing cooler than the mall and nothing cooler than the record store, which was the first thing you saw when you walked in the main entrance there where Barnes & Noble is now. I've seen them all come and go. I think we're the last man standing, but <laughs> I'm proud of it, sure. And we'll be right back with Ralph to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Ralph DeWitt, the owner of Ralph's Records. A big part of the story of Ralph's Records is the resilience over changes in technology and products, vinyl, 8-track, cassettes, CDs, and then now back to vinyl. What is it about the experiences that you've had and you as a person that's allowed you to ride these waves over time? I got into the used market early on, and that was affordable. That was a way for me to compete with the big boys. Everybody else just sold new product. I didn't have any money when I started out. When I first started, it was all albums and eight tracks. Cassettes were creeping in, and I didn't like them. They were dainty. They were handy and maybe even sounded better. And your songs didn't cut off in the middle sometimes, like going from track one to track two on a Grand Funk eight track. So gradually, I started having to carry cassettes. 45s really were already dead by the time I started. I'm a big 45 collector. I love them. But that market had changed. 45s were really for 50s and 60s teenagers. And they were convenient. They were affordable. You could stack them on a turntable. But I couldn't make a living selling those. So we got into uh, cassettes. And then CDs came into it in early to mid-80s. And I thought, what is this? Records are the thing, and tapes are the thing, and now they're coming out with these little flying saucer-looking silver things, and those are never going to catch on. (laughs) So I didn't get into them. Well, everybody else was starting to sell them. I did get a competitor there probably in the, I guess, the late 80s, University Records, moved into two blocks away from my store. So I started having to keep up with the competition, and they were selling lots of CDs. So I thought, well, you better latch onto this. So we started selling CDs, but they were such a new product that there weren't any used ones yet. You know, nobody was getting rid of their CDs. So I had to start shelling out and buying some new product as well, then trying to shelve them properly. You know, as each new format came out, you'd have to buy new fixtures or adjust yours to fit. And if you remember, they came in long boxes, they called them. The good thing about long boxes were they were hard to steal because they were bigger. Now, later, as CDs were just the size of a wallet, they were pretty easy to snag and stick in your coat pocket. Technology has continued to change, and CDs ruled for 20 years. And then out of nowhere, vinyl started coming back. Now, we never got out of it, although... I sold hundreds of thousands of albums dirt cheap just for the room because Ralph's Records, our motto was always, we'll take them all. 
So if you brought in 18 boxes of records, we didn't take up your time and go through them one by one. We'd say, I'll give you this much for the whole thing. And I always told my employees, if they brought them in, they're ready to get rid of them. If there's a lot of junk, we can sell that too. Well, it's not necessarily true because I ended up with a warehouse full of hundreds of thousands of junk records. Then when vinyl came back, it wasn't for the junk. It wasn't for the bad stuff. It was the kids that wanted the cool stuff. You know, the 10,000 Barbara Streisand and Kenny Rogers and Firestone Christmas albums, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass that I had boxes of. And those were not going to sell at any price. But if you got some Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or Jimi Hendrix, they wanted the cool stuff. They liked the cool stuff. If you're 18 years old, you're going to like the new artist more than anything else. But you still know what's cool. I mean, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, they're ageless. They're always going to be desired. Now, it's hard for me to realize that a lot of those are collectible now because I've seen so many thousands of them through the years. And when I go to a record show and I'm looking for something to resell, I'm passing by all that stuff because, well, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, biggest selling record of all time. And what I don't realize is that's what I could buy for five bucks and turn around and sell for 20. Profit's profit. But you do have to change with the times. I live in the past, so it was hard for me to change sometimes. And then as my store progressed, not only did we have to stay up musically, but stay up with what was selling. You don't want to be a junk store. You want it to be related. I didn't ever sell shoes. I sold musical or showbiz kind of related items. So then video games, well, a lot of them were discs. They looked just like CDs. They would fit on the same shelves. I had no interest in video games. But my son did and all his friends did. They're showing me what's cool and what's not, and you should sell these. They were really kind of expensive when you bought them new. So we started taking in used video games, and boy, did that sprout. It's still a big, big part of our sales. And from that, it got into DVDs. They're also discs. We still sell tons of DVDs, even though I will admit most people go to Netflix. They don't really want to own the software like they used to. But there is still a large percentage of people that do. Can't find everything you want on Netflix or Prime. If you want to own the DVD, you can go down to the store and buy one for four or five bucks. You got to sell what people want. Pokemon cards. I had no interest in them, but people were asking for them. And so what did I do? I hired people that knew about this stuff. I didn't know about video games, but I hired young men that did. We got into sports cards at one point. Of course, I missed it by about two years. Okay, here's a funny story. Early 90s, it had peaked probably in the late 80s, that fad, that time, but it was still pretty strong. I put an ad in the local paper that said, I will buy all your sports cards for a penny a piece. And I thought, nobody's going to sell me their cards for a penny a piece, but I'll try it. Guys were pulling up with vans full thousands of common cards, which I didn't know even what commons were. Well, it turns out no collectors want the commons. They only want the rookie cards and the all-star cards. And my goal was to be the biggest sports card selection in town. I was there. And you know what? I've still got them. (laughs) We haven't sold them in years. But in my warehouse, I've got boxes and boxes of common cards from 1988 to 1993 that still are worth nothing. So you do learn as you go. Like I say, I mentioned all those Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass records. I did manage to unload those, but I didn't make much. Really, I've always been a quantity over quality guy, but that doesn't always pay off. (laughs) Sometimes I admire the guys that pick and choose. You've had multiple storefronts, several outside of the city of Lubbock. How do you reflect on those experiences? 
At the time, I was younger and not afraid of anything, and you think that anything is possible. And I looked at chains, Flipside and Hastings and such. And of course, what I didn't realize is those are not one-man operations. These are guys that, you know, have managers and district regional managers and people that handle these things. Well, I was trying to handle them all at once. Now, I never had really big stores. The one I've got now is that still exists is the biggest store ever that I ever had. He'd asked about the history of that. And I got the front bottom half. It was the cleaners at first. And then the recording studio went out of business next door. So I asked the landlord if I could rent that. Sure. So now I'm up to like $500 a month rent. And he didn't mind if I even knocked a big hole in the wall and connected the two sides, which I did. So now I had the whole bottom floor. I still had no parking spaces because all we had was three diagonal spaces in front of the store. There was a hamburger stand next door where the parking lot ended up. But at that time, it was the hamburger stand and they didn't want to share their parking. And then upstairs was a guy that lived there that had a stained glass shop. Gradually, he moved out. And now I had the whole building. I rented the entire building, still with three parking spaces. Well, mysteriously, that hamburger stand burnt down. I had nothing to do with it, but it burned down a couple of years later. They cleared it off, and he rented me that parking lot. Now I had the whole uh, square. It all worked out, but it didn't have to. That's how that first store started. And we'll be right back with Ralph to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. To Around Town, we're speaking with Ralph DeWitt, the owner of Ralph's Records. Coming back to the stores, you also had one in Amarillo and even as far as Oklahoma City. How did those go? When you're young, you think you can do it all. And I thought I'd have a chain of Ralph's Records. That's how you expand. That's how you succeed. So I had the store on 10th and University for about five years and opened a store at 34th and Salem only lasted two years. I learned pretty quickly that it's much better to have a freestanding building where people can see you. Not many people remember it for good reason. They didn't see it. It didn't lose much money. It didn't make much money. The third store was Oklahoma City. And the only reason I opened a store in Oklahoma City, that was more like 1986, was I knew a guy that already had a store there and he was closing it up. And I thought, wow, he's always bragging about how well his store is doing. I didn't know Oklahoma City, but I thought he's already got a built-in clientele. I'll just go up there and take it over and move my stuff in there. And what I didn't remember was Oklahoma City was 300 miles away. I knew nobody up there. Advertising was 10 times the expense in Oklahoma City that was in Lubbock. Found that out when I tried to buy dollar a holler late night spots and they'd never heard of such a thing. Anyway, I couldn't even afford to have a grand opening up there. It just came in with a whimper and went out the same way. Lasted about six months. So then was Amarillo, about the same size as Lubbock and about the same kind of people. And it actually did pretty well. I had that store for five years. My timing wasn't well because I also opened it at the same time we started having children. (laughs) And my wife didn't appreciate the fact that I was gone so much. But I enjoyed Amarillo. I had a lot of good times up there. The people were very nice. And it lasted five years and and did pretty well. Closed that store down, 
And about that time, McDougal started renovating the whole North Overton area and bought my building. And with that money, I bought the store on 82nd Street. And that was in late 91 and still going strong. I made some mistakes. Oklahoma City shouldn't have happened. The 34th Street store was more trouble than it was worth, probably. The best stores, my baby was that 10th and University, two-story, really cool building that I wish I hadn't sold because I still dream about it. In fact, when I dream about my stores, it's that store. It's not even the current one that's made me money. I don't dream about it, I guess, because it's still a thing. You don't have to dream about it. You live and you learn, and the first store and the last store were my best. And actually, when McDougal bought out the 10th and University building, we moved down to 16th and University. We were there for six years, but it never had the same feel, never had the same love that it seemed to have in the original store. Anyway, it was still across the street from Texas Tech, and I always liked to be part of Tech. And if I ever went back, that's what I would do again is open one across the street from Tech. Despite these setbacks, you've had a lot more successes than failures. Did you ever doubt yourself in this process that you would find success? I don't think I did. I've never lacked in self-confidence, and I was lucky, though. Luck plays a big part of it. It could have gone either way. I was confident. Otherwise, I wouldn't have started something like that. Some people wouldn't dare to start a store with nothing but the records they had in their garage. And and I had taken lots of business classes at Tech, so I knew something about keeping records, but I still didn't keep the records I should have. Like right now, I can't go back and tell you how much I made in 1982. If I had money in the bank, it was good enough for me. Again, if I had to do it over again, there were moves that I wouldn't have made. As far as Lubbock, I knew Lubbock well. I knew the people. They've always supported me. And really, I knew that it would work. If it hadn't, I guess I'd have found something to do. And in fact, several years into the first store, I wasn't making any money. did start off slow. I mean, you can only sell so many garage sale records and pay your bills. So I told my dad that I didn't think it was going to work. And he said, well, let's get you a, a resume written up. And he said, I know how to do that. And so he tried to make Paperboy and Arrogance DJ. When he reworded them, I mean, all of a sudden I was a transportation engineer instead of Paperboy, and, and he made it look really good. And I hadn't had many jobs. Piggly Wiggly, I think somehow I was some kind of nighttime manager, but that wasn't true. And anyway, I went to a few interviews. I realized pretty quickly that that wasn't what I wanted to do. You'd go to a Holiday Inn banquet room. There'd be 42 guys competing for one job, and and they show you a video of their headquarters in Boston, and then you have to give them your best sales pitch. And these are legitimate jobs. That's kind of what my dad did. But after about three of those, I said, go back to your store. Kind of like City Slickers, Billy Crystal at the end. I'm not going to quit my job. I'm going to do it better. And that's exactly what I did. And it did take off. And the boss has got to be there, and your heart's got to be in it. Where did the pink motif and the boll weevil come from? I consider those growing up in Lubbock to be iconic. Well, I've never lied about how I got the logo. I stole it. (laughs) The guy that I stole it from knows it. So when I got that first building, it had a bunch of old flyers from bands that had played at Main Street Saloon and Fat Dogs and stuff. And so I was getting my first ad in the University Daily Tech newspaper. And the first ad was just words. And the second time she sold me, she said, you really need a logo. And I said, well, you're probably right. I don't have one. She said, well, is there any kind of picture you'd like to put in it? And I started looking through those flyers and there was one of the iconic bull weevil. Not too many people knew what it was. I've heard roach and crow and everything else. And the reason I know that is because the name of the band was Evil Weevil. The band had already broken up, so I felt good about that. But I used it for several years, and finally one guy came into my store and said, I see you're using my old band's logo on your sign. And I said, yeah, is that okay? And he said, yeah, the guy that drew it knows it. He's 
moved to Austin. He thinks it's pretty cool. And I said, well, here, here's a free T-shirt. Send that to him. The guy's name was Nick Ferrari. He must be a great guy because he sent me a picture of himself wearing the T-shirt, but he's crossed out Ralph's records and put Evil Weevil over it. So he's just a cool musician guy. But I thought, you know, be honest. That's exactly how it happened. Now, as far as the pink motif, Oklahoma City wasn't working. I told my dad Oklahoma City was part of his territory, and he said, well, you need something bright. Your building is drab. And he said, just go for it at this point. And he said, fluorescent pink, let's go for it. And I said, well, you know, pink, black, and white, that's kind of a 50s thing. And he said, do that. So I painted all my buildings pink, black, and white. Some people think it's ugly. Work for us. That's the story. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Another chapter of Rouse Records involves ticket sales. I realized pretty quickly that that was free advertising for a lot of businesses and ticket sales were very important then. You know, there weren't online sales. Select a seat had just come into being in the probably around 1990 and that was Lubbock's first networked ticket sales. So I put in my offer. They were already selling them at Lips, which was going out of business, Family Video, Dollar Western Wear. The UC was selling them. And they said, well, we already have enough. They finally said, well, we've got an opening now. Maybe when Lips went out. They didn't like the fact that I didn't have an office. I had a dingy back room that the two ladies that collected money were not happy with. So they were going to pull it away from me. So I had to start telling them stories about how I was remodeling this old building. And this office was going to be really nice soon. And still they're looking around for bugs. (laughs) And we're counting out lots of money back there. And it didn't look real secure. It really took off for us all through the 90s and early 2000s. People would camp out in front of our stores. It was legendary. We'd have lines of hundreds of people down the street. Not only did it get people down there, but we made money off of it. You know, and I didn't mind holding good tickets for people. I can honestly say I never took $1 extra for pulling good tickets for my friends. But I got a few free car washes and free free lunches. <laughs> but it didn't have to. I did enjoy being in charge of tickets. It was uh, fun. And I'll do it again in a minute. When you think about the Rouse Records of today, where do you think it exists in the city of Lubbock? I've retired. I still own the building and have my hand in it, but Doug Staff, the new owner, is doing very well. He's a lot younger than me, has younger thoughts. He knows how to advertise online. Our clientele stayed really the same age all these years. It was always in their teens and 20s. And of course, everybody's welcome, and it was a great experience. I'd do it again in a minute, but I'll go back and hang out for a while and see some old customers, and then the problems start, whatever they may be, and I'm like, oh yeah, now I remember. (laughs) You don't need this. (laughs) You don't want this. Ralph, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, I've enjoyed it. This was wonderful. I hope you have me on again. Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld. This show was produced by Chuck Luck. Our guest today was Ralph DeWitt, the owner of Ralph's Records. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town or to listen to previous episodes, visit ttupublicmedia.org.